So we're going to talk about the Gospel of Thomas. Um, and we'll come back to these pictures, actually. Uh, and I'm probably going to do a little bit more background today than we would try normally. Um, part of that is just, I think, to avoid doing a lot of <laughs> reading and talking about the Gospel of Thomas text. Um, it's just, I, Fred made a comment to me, was exactly the same comment I was going to make in class, and that is with my rather low level of expertise in this area, I'm quite happy to say this doesn't look like canon material. I mean, it, it's, it's obvious to me, and, and, and maybe it's a very naive opinion, I don't know, but it's obvious to me that it, it uh, was not on its way to being selected. Um, and please interject your comments as well. Perhaps you may have a much more positive comment than I do about this text. Oh, and I, in, a, in 10 minutes or so, if someone would volunteer and open up their Bible to Luke, we're going to compare some of the uh, sayings that are in Thomas to very, very similar sayings in Luke. So um, I actually don't have the Luke text up here. So somebody would, okay, have a volunteer. Um, okay, background. In about 1945, although it's not even clear, it may have been uh, grave robbers a year or two earlier that actually found it. But the, the, the date that's given is that in 1945, some peasants in uh, Upper Egypt accidentally dug into a Christian tomb from a much, much earlier period uh, and found in that tomb a, an earthen jar sealed up. Inside of it were 13 codices, 13 books. The, the pages are papyrus and they are, you know, they're put together as a book, not as a scroll, but, but as, a, as a book. Um, they determined they were from the fourth century. They're entirely written in Coptic, uh, which is an, an Egyptian language. Uh, it was actually, the discovery was made, whatever this town name is, Chenobaskian, which is on the east side of the Nile River. Um, the announcement of this find which was thought to be quite significant, was actually made in the modern-day town of Nag Hammadi. Nag Hammadi is on the other side of the river, uh, on the west side. So this find has been known since the 1940s as the Nag Hammadi Library. Uh, and it was shown to be a collection of books Perhaps from a, there is a known monastery that was founded in this area in about the fourth century. Uh, so the, 
the books may have been from that monastery, but they are Gnostic. And we'll talk a little bit about what, what that means. The, uh, the Gnostic form of Christianity, the Gnostic heresy. Um, and there was, uh, sort of as an aside, probably 75 years earlier, some, sometime in the late 19th century, uh, some fragments of Greek documents were found, and they were they looked to be sayings of Jesus. The interesting thing that got everybody excited was that they were sayings of Jesus that were not found in the Gospels. So they were, but these were just really little fragments of papyrus with with fragments of sentences and and. Uh, there was some work in the late 19th century putting it together. When, when the Nag Hammadi Library was found, lo and behold, one of the documents um, out of about 48 or 49 uh, documents that are in these 13 volumes, so quite an extensive collection. One of them was the Gospel of Thomas, and they figured out fairly quickly, I guess, well, I don't know how quickly, but they figured out sometime in the 1950s and 60s that these fragments that were found in the late 19th century were the Greek originals that the Gospel of Thomas was translated into Coptic from. And they were able to match up um, some of them. Uh, so we have a little bit of the Greek document background to, to this Coptic document, but, uh, but not, not very much. If you've got questions, so what speak they, up and I'll defer to somebody. So what they found was uh, a Greek translation of what was was allegedly uh, written. So, so it was like a, a fourth century translation into Coptic. Into Coptic from from and, Greek. From Greek, and they, the reason we're looking at it is they think the Greek document was from the second century, and maybe even early second century. Uh, but. All of the, this library, all of these 40-some texts that are parts of this library are documents from Gnosticism, from the, the Gnostic form of Christianity. Um, some of this you've probably heard. Some in the audience may know much more about this than I do. Um, salvation is through knowledge. That, that's where the word Gnosticism comes from. The Greek word for knowledge is gnosis. So uh, they believed in, in a dualism. Matter is uh, evil. The supreme God is pure spirit. So there's a complete disconnect between matter and the supreme God. Uh, the Supreme God could not have been involved in creation because that would have meant touching matter and being involved in matter. 
Um, they rejected incarnation because that would have put the spirit into a into a uh, flesh body, and of course they they rejected resurrection because that they Jesus the the uh, Son of God could not have been connected with a fleshly body. Uh, they they had a a secondary deity, uh, this demiurge, which was inferior to the supreme God, and the demiurge was the one that was involved in, in creation. Yes? Uh, so I'm going to try to get this right. Um, uh, when you talk about Gnosticism and these <coughs> non-canonical books, quote, books, uh, so the document known as the Gospel of Judas was discovered, uh, I believe, in the 1900s. In fact, I'm, I know that it changed hands in the 1900s to on the antiquities black market and ended up being in a safety deposit box somewhere, I believe, in upstate New York for around 20 years where a lot of parts were dried out, which is a whole different thing. But... Um, the thing about the Gospel of Judas is that it paints Judas in a positive light to some degree because of the idea that he's the one that released Jesus from this being bound by a body, right? From being bound by a flesh. And so um, that's obviously a very different twist yeah. to things that Judas is seen as, you know, the betrayer, the bad guy, but in the world of Gnosticism, it was a little different. Yeah, yeah. Gnosticism is just, I, I think, very different than most of us are familiar with. Um, yeah, G Gospel of Judas, I, I don't remember a whole lot about. It, it was known much earlier. I mean, it, it was sort of debunked in the third or fourth century, fifth century, uh, this particular text copy. Uh, reappeared and there was, uh, I know what, 10, 12 years ago or something like that, there was a lot of interest and, and it made CNN and that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, it did. And I think the person that brought it back to the States didn't know what they had. Yeah. So it's kind of fascinating in that regard. So it, Anyhow, salvation by knowledge, and, and these people that were able to communicate the knowledge and impart it to others, uh, they were the, the select ones, and they, they could impart it to an elite group. Uh, I, I have run into, I guess you would call it modern-day Gnosticism. And I don't want to, if anyone, if this goes counter with anyone in here, it's not intended. But I was told that you can go to heaven, just like believing like we do, but to really achieve a higher plane, you have to be able to speak in tongues and do other spiritual gifts. It's a, that is a higher plane, and you get more satisfaction out of it than if you're just a poor, plain Christian. You achieve this higher level through learning.
learning these spiritual gifts, and that, that would be the equivalent of rising to a higher level of knowledge in, under the Gnostic doctrine. I, I think there is, there's two things. There is sort of an organized group that uses <coughs> Gnostic or whatever in the name of their organization and you know has offices and officers and all that sort of thing. But uh, on the other hand, I, I think there's also some of this which shows up. Um, we're, we're talking here about the second century where Gnosticism was really beginning to be well-developed and influential and taking over in some areas. Uh, earlier, uh, you know, there's, there's hints in some of John's writings of these sort of beliefs being present, perhaps not well organized yet, or not a great, great lot of influence. But uh, certainly it was something that the church fought with, and people like Irenaeus uh, combated and debunked and, and you know, very explicitly worked against. So, for the sake of time here, uh, I'll move. Um, so in the second book, in the second codex of this group of 13, there is, um, yeah. It's okay, even the Vatican's losing its standing, so we're yeah. <laughs> There, there is um, something come to be known as the Gospel of Thomas. For those of you that have read parts of it, it, it doesn't read like we envision a gospel, like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There's no narrative. It's a collection of 114 sayings, and this, this is actually a, a the entire document is online photographically, and this is a picture of the, the first two pages. The numbers on the left are the sort of accepted divisions into the sayings, and, and we'll go back to this other slide in a minute. So there's, and this is Coptic. Uh, if It doesn't look like anything that I recognize. So there's a, there's a little bit of an introduction, and then saying number one starts two, three, four, five, six, seven, Eight. Um, so you you can see the my thinking the documents in pretty good shape. If, if you were able to read Coptic and translate, you could probably make your way through it. And Leland, what, relatively what, easily. Around what year do we date the translation? The, this document on papyrus is fourth century. So that, that opening says, these are the secret sayings that the living Jesus spoke and Didymus, Judas, Thomas recorded. Don't know anything about this person. Uh, Didymus, you know, from New Testament means twin. So uh, Judas, Thomas, the twin. Uh, there is... You know, as the traditions go, there's a tradition out there somewhere that he was the twin brother of Jesus. But that, that 
adds to the weirdity. Um, and then the first saying is, and he said, whoever discovers the interpretation of these sayings will not taste death. So, you already at the beginning of this document got a bit of a taste. These are yeah. secret sayings. It's not so much important that you know the sayings or that you memorize the sayings. The importance is the interpretation. So uh, we're back to this theme again of knowledge, of, of being able to, to know what the, the secret is behind all of this. So let's, we got 15 minutes left or so. Let's um, start looking at it. Of the 114 sayings, about half of them are identical or really similar to sayings of Jesus that are in one of the Gospels. So, do the arithmetic. If about half of them are in there, then about half of them are not. They are uh, new to the New Testament, and, and I, I think I took this from someone. Some of them are uh, wildly out of character. I mean, some of them is, if you read through them, and, and I, I know some people were sort of frowning about the reading of them. Some of them are just really odd. There is some structure that looks a bit like a beatitude. The um, translation that was available for free on, the, on a website somewhere uh, doesn't use the word blessed. I think it uses, does it use the word congratulate or something, but um, there are some of them that look like Beatitudes. There's, there's some of them that look like parables. Um, there are some words that turn up over and over. Um, there's a number of times where it says, you know, if you do this or you understand this, you will not taste death. There's a number of the sayings that end with something like, if you've got two good ears, you should hear this. Uh, that was repeated know, six or eight times, I think, throughout. Um, so, so some of it, there's, there's some continuity to it, the, the collection, there's, there's similarities. So, Luke 12, um, and we'll just look sort of quickly, some of these, if you read Luke 12, 49. I have come to bring fire on earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. So, and then, so, and, so, saying 10, Almost identical, very, very, very close. Uh, 51, 53. Do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. For 
now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Yeah, so the, the passage in Luke is even a little bit longer, and I, I guess when I was first reading through here, boy, I, I didn't remember this, there will be five and two against three and dividing up, uh, I, but it's right there in Luke. Um, now, saying 39, you know, 11.52. Woe to you experts in the law, because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered, and you have hindered those who were entering. So, saying 39 is very similar to Luke 11.52. There's another saying... Um, which really has the same thrust, uh, but I've never heard before. Apparently it's, it's a parable or a, sort of a parable that's known before about a dog who sleeps in the manger but doesn't eat, but doesn't let the cattle eat, which you know, dogs of course don't eat straw, so, but he sleeps there and prevents the cattle from uh, eating. I, 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 I don't remember the number. It's 102. Um, yes. Yeah. In this translation, rather dramatic. Damn the Pharisees. They are like a dog sleeping in the cattle manger. The dog neither eats nor lets the cattle eat. In addition to sayings that look very similar to the, to the New Testament, uh, to sayings of Jesus in the New Testament, there's some others that are similar, but they've been twisted a bit differently. Or um, one person that I was looking at says they've been amplified or conflated, which is, I think, a very nice way of putting it. Four, 23 and 24. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. I tell you the truth, he continues, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. So saying 31 has got some of this, the same, no prophet is welcome on his home turf, interesting translation here and then doctors don't cure those who know them <laughs> it's just so if, if anybody uh, goes to see Tony Ross I guess don't expect him to at least pretend you don't know him. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's just uh, some, somebody raised their hand. Yeah. yeah. This, this reminds me uh, of like somebody who's read the scriptures and then 20 or 30 years later 
tries to write down what he remembers from back when he read them. It's kind of that feeling to yeah, it also. Yeah. yeah. So he gets it part of it right, but yet he has to fill it out and make it so he just fills it out. So it, some of these just just don't make sense to me. I wonder how the doctor felt about that. <laughs> <laughs> it certainly and, didn't and, show up in Luke that way. Yeah, and, and so, I don't know, I, I guess part of it that we don't know mm -hmm. is, was the original Greek document better? Yeah. And when it got translated into Coptic a couple hundred years later, did, did the translator not do a good job. Well, I wonder but, that, because when I read, I'm thinking, well, I'm agreeing with you, it doesn't sound like, uh, it, 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 at least in English, it doesn't read like any of the Gospels, but I wondered, if, to give it the benefit of the doubt, just for the sake of argument, that, you know, was that a function of, of uh, differing translation methods? But to counter that, what I have read, I, I certainly can't judge it for myself, but is that the Greek fragments that have been found are very well translated into Coptic. So the ones that have been found seem to match up quite well. So, so let's see. I think this is the last reading. Luke 16 and then Luke 5. Okay. Uh, Luke 16, 13. No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And then 5, 36 and 39. He told them this parable. No one tears a patch from a new garment and sews it on an old one. If he does, he will have torn the new garment the patch from the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins. The wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, wants the new, for he says the old is better. So this one says... Jesus said, a person cannot mount two horses or bend two bows. And a slave cannot serve two masters, otherwise that slave will honor the one and offend the other. That sounds good. Nobody drinks aged wine and immediately wants to drink young wine. Young wine is not poured into old wineskins, or they might break. And aged wine is not poured into new wineskins, or it might spoil. That's a new part. An old patch is not sewn onto a new garment, since it would create a tear. So that last sentence is the, is the opposite of what's in Luke. Luke talks about putting a new patch on an old garment and the new patch 
when it was laundered or whatever was shrank. And, so, somewhat familiar, but not. Uh, I don't know if anybody else recognized this or if you did or, or have any comment on it. I thought it was interesting that at least, I've got it circled here four times, there's a reference in a positive sense to the imperial rule. Uh, and the translation in parentheses has the father's imperial rule, which is a different way of referring to maybe the kingdom. Yes, yeah, I think uh, that whoever this translator is into English yeah, is, right. is doing that rather than than Which is God's an kingdom. interesting way of translating it or expressing it by yeah. the by the author, but it was. And then I noticed in, um, and I thought this was interesting. Two of the large sayings, sixty four and sixty five, are, and I think essentially the same, recapturing two of these significant. Uh, parables, parables of yeah. Jesus yeah, about the banquet and um, and then about the son about yeah. the son being killed by the people that he'd given yeah. care of. I think there's actually three of them there, Is, uh, there them may be. That, that are familiar parables yeah. whether it's 63, 64, and 65 or 64, 65, and 66 The but, ones I noticed were yeah. 64 and 65 they are very lengthy and was like purposeful recreations of those parables yeah. for what, for some reason, seed. Sowing a seed. Seeds, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That is the other one. And right. one person I was reading made a big deal out of the fact that the sowing parable talks about one of the parts is seeds thrown on the road. And they said, no, no, in Luke, I think it is, it's thrown beside the road. Did some, we can make that big a deal out of did some commentaries ex explore the theology of women in the church when they read this gospel. There, there's some. The last, the last verse is just oh, off the chart. Saying one fourteen is is uh, I think a great example of where was make Mary leave us for females don't deserve life. And they should be turned into males. males. And yeah, I, I don't know if anybody else has an explanation. I don't. I'll say I know that um, the idea there about females don't deserve life has to do with that higher knowledge, right? that kind of secret esoteric wisdom. So, and but, so, so males were seen to, in that day yes. as they had more opportunity yeah. to... More of a capacity for that sort of thing. Right. And then the other is that when it says uh, make her make her male, that she will become a living spirit resembling males, that, that accounts for a lot of the back and forth about this sort of thing that the early church was facing. For example, when Paul is writing his pastoral letters and saying, there, time and again what you see is he's emphasizing the importance of a distinction between men and women in the church because both have been included in the family of God. As in their distinction, so women don't need to act like men, in other words, or, or dress like men, or cut their hair short, or you know. And so um, that's a really 
you know, a, a point of real distinction, I think, between the Gnostic message and the Christian one as well. Yeah, I think I've just got a couple more slides. This, this is, <coughs> some of this is taken actually from a name you might recognize. There, there's a, a really nice, long article written by F.F. F. Bruce in the early 1960s uh, where he divides things up into sayings that are identical, sayings that are similar, and new sayings. And we might just sort of read through here. Uh, Jesus said, I am the light that is over all things. I am all. From me all came forth, and to me all attained. Split a piece of wood, and I am there. Lift up the stone, and you will find me there. Um, there is a part for stones in the Gnostic, some of the Gnostic traditions, uh, a, a spirituality for stones. Uh, Jesus said, whoever is near me is near the fire, and whoever is far from me is far from the Father's domain, or the Father's kingdom. Saying seven, I just thought was interesting. And there's a second translation here in, in the brackets. Happy is the lion whom the man eats, so that the lion becomes man. But woe to the man whom the lion eats, so that the man becomes lion. And the thought is here, you know, they, they saw this separation between flesh and spirit. So if a, if a lion was killed and eaten, that, that the spirit of the lion or whatever would be incorporated into the person. But if a person is eaten by a lion, that makes it even more difficult for them to move from human flesh, somehow exiting from lion flesh to get to a, a free spirit. As I said, uh, and, and so saying seven is one of these sort of like a beatitude. So is saying 49. Congratulations to those who are alone and chosen, for you will find the Father's domain, for you have come from it, and you will return there again. So, blessed are those who are alone. Some parables. And he said, the human one is like a wise fisherman who cast his net into the sea and drew it up from the sea full of little fish. Among them, the wise fisherman discovered a fine, large fish. He threw all the little fish back into the sea and easily chose the large fish. Anyone here with two good ears had better listen. Jesus said, the father's imperial rule is like a shepherd who had a hundred sheep. One of them, the largest, went astray. 
He left the 99 and looked for the one until he found it. After he had toiled, he said to the sheep, I love you more than the 99. And then 109, I thought is, I mean, some of these border on humor. Um, Jesus said, the father's imperial rule is like a person who had a treasure hidden in his field but did not know it. And when he died, he left it to his son. The son did not know about it either. He took over the field and sold it. The buyer went plowing, discovered the treasure, and began to lend money at interest to whomever he wished. So I, and then we've got the parable of the treasure in the field and all of a sudden we've got the owner becoming a banker and lending money to whomever he wished. I, I think that as said at the beginning, um, perhaps an apology is due for putting you through this. <laughs> but in order to give this sort of full picture of what was going on in the second century, I think it's interesting to look at a, a document that had some level of acceptance, some level of distribution uh, around, and also one that was you know, pointedly atta attacked by writers like Irenaeus and others as, as heresy, as, as uh, not something that a document that could be trusted and in fact a document that clearly didn't make it into the New Testament canon. Next week, Shepherd of Burmese.